Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 54 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story, but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. A shout out to our sponsors over at Catholic Balm Co., where you can find the most exquisite beard balms, oils, lotion bars, and more, whether one is Catholic or not. Head over to catholicbalm.co to check out their great variety of products, and be sure to enter the word Pope at checkout, and you'll get 10% off your entire order. So once again, that is catholicbomb.co and the word Pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Bomb Co. for sponsoring the Popecast. Our Pope this week faced down an invading king, fought against a nasty heresy in the East, and has something in common with just five other popes in all of church history. Oh, and he's not the St. Paul that you're thinking of. This week on the Popecast, it's the other St. Paul, Pope St. Paul I. The early life of the first ever Pope Paul is all but lost to history, but we know for certain that he's included in the elite company of something that's only happened, by our count, three times in the history of the papacy. He and his predecessor were brothers. Paul and his brother and predecessor, Pope Stephen II, missed out on being the first pair of brothers in history by about 50 years. Sicinius and Constantine hold that title. See episode 24 of the Popecast for their story. But they would be the last pair for around 300 years, when Benedict VIII and Pope John XIX reigned back-to-back for the last time in church history. Born in Rome likely around the turn of the 8th century, Paul like Stephen, was educated in the Lateran Palace, having been born into an aristocratic family. He was tapped by Pope St. Zachary to serve as a deacon sometime in the 740s and then played a prominent role in his brother's papal government following Zachary's death. Stephen reigned for five years before dying on April 26, 757. For you trivia nerds out there, that's 1,257 years almost to the day before two other popes, John XXIII and John Paul II, would be canonized in the very same city. Anyway, for the next month, there was apparently a bit of wrangling between two camps, one being Paul and the other being that of the archdeacon Theophylact, one of Stephen's senior clergymen. Aside from the usual scheming to put their man in power in opposition to the policies of the dead pope, there's no real indication that the group's warring was overly contentious. But in any case, there was no contest in the end. Paul's personality, and likely his sanctity, as we'll hear in a bit, likely played a part in his winning a large majority of the acclamation to succeed Stephen II, and so he was consecrated the 93rd Pope on May 29th, 757. Paul I's ten years as Pope were a nice mix of warring kings in the West and heretics in the East. What's new, right? Pepin the Short, was king of the Franks at that time. You likely know him better because of his son, Charlemagne, or his dad, Charles Martel. But Pepin was still a great man in himself. He was undefeated in battle throughout his life. He was a great patron of Paul I and served as a key ally and protector of the patrimony of St. Peter. The territory should have been larger, but the Lombard king Desiderius, whose daughter would later marry Charlemagne, as it were, welched on his promise to return several cities to the Roman states as part of the famous donation of Pepin a couple years earlier, a massive land grant given to the Pope in 756. And so things were a bit tense, naturally. But they only got worse. What happened next is like an 8th century version of a spy thriller. 
Desiderius conquered two more duchies under papal control, Spoleto and Benevento, in, in 758, and while he was there, he struck up an alliance with the Byzantine Empire via the Greek ambassador Georgios. Desiderius then took a detour to Rome on his way home, where Paul I, as you might expect, demanded that the Lombard give back the cities he promised. Desiderius initially refused completely, but then said he'd give back one of the cities, but only if Paul convinced Pepin to release the Lombard hostages he'd hauled off when Pepin defeated Desiderius' predecessor, King Aistulf. If Paul didn't comply, the Lombard king threatened war with the Pope. So Paul was in a pickle, but he hatched a plan so crazy it just might work. After figuring out how to get a message to the Frankish king in the first place, he sent Bishop George of Ostia and Stephen, a Roman priest and possibly Paul's own successor, the future Stephen III, to deliver the message to Pepin along with a Frankish messenger. The letter that ostensibly was getting them safe passage through the Lombard realm showed that the Pope was agreeing to Desiderius' demands, begging Pepin to strike a peace deal and release the hostages, likely among several other things, given the gravity of the situation. But little did the Lombards know that Paul I had enlisted his messengers with a second secret letter, in which the Pope, as the Catholic Encyclopedia recounts, quote, communicated to him the latest occurrences, informed him of the agreement of Desiderius with the Byzantines for the conquest of Ravenna, and implored Pepin to come to the aid of the Pope, to punish the Lombard king, and to force him to yield the towns retained by him, end quote. All of the drama was apparently for naught, at least temporarily, given that Paul sent another delegation to Pepin in 759, the next year, maybe saying, hey, did you get my last message? In any case, thankfully, the second note worked, because the following year, in 760, Pepin sent two Frankish ambassadors to meet with Desiderius, his own brother, Bishop Remedius of Rouen, and Duke Anchar. The result had the Lombard king again promising to return the Pope his patrimony along with the towns he'd been demanding, but surprise, surprise, Desiderius refused to make good on his word and only continued his encroachment on Roman territory. Paul pleaded for help from Pepin once more, but the Frankish king had his own problems. Georgios, the Byzantine ambassador, had won over one of Paul's own legates, but thankfully couldn't sway Pepin himself, keeping intact the protection of papal territory against the Lombard and Byzantine ambition. But around that time, the Franks and Paul both feared a Byzantine siege. Rumors had been stirring that a Byzantine fleet might land in Italy before long. But in the next few years, both the Archbishop of Ravenna and Patriarch of Venice received letters from the Byzantine Emperor asking for the voluntary surrender of each city's inhabitants. As a result, Pepin and Desiderius were able to set aside their differences to not only reach a compromise in defining boundaries to papal and Lombard lands, but Pepin was able to direct Desiderius to actually help the Pope by recovering Roman lands in southern Italy that were under Byzantine control at that time. Of course, protecting the West as a whole was in both kings' best interests when it came to potential invasion from the East. Complicating things in all this, and as a, as a fitting way to switch topics to the spiritual side of Paul's reign, was the Eastern dalliance with iconoclasm, the heretical banning and destruction of all images of Jesus and the saints, which had gained popularity just a few decades earlier under Emperor Leo III. Leo had died in 741 AD, but his son, Constantine V, was still reigning while Paul was pope and iconoclasm was beginning to get into full swing in the East, complete with several savage martyrdoms of monks who refused to trample on icons or give up their habit, for monasticism itself 
was even forbidden, along with the display of so-called idols. Iconoclasm itself wouldn't be condemned by a full ecumenical council of the church for 20 years after Paul I had gone to his eternal reward, but along with several envoys and letters to Byzantium that he sent throughout his 10 years, a synod convened in 767, just before his death, allowed the Pope to make his thoughts well known, that the veneration of images was most certainly not idol worship, and was to be not only allowed, but resoundingly encouraged in a robust practice of the Christian faith. Aside from these major occurrences, Pope St. Paul I was a great patron of religious life in general, turning his father's childhood home into a monastery at one instance. He also transferred many martyrs' relics from the decaying catacombs into the churches around Rome. He moved the remains of St. Petronia, at the time a patron of the Franks, and thought to have been the daughter of St. Peter, into a chapel built by his brother for her veneration, along with constructing churches honoring the Blessed Virgin Mary, as well as the Apostles. Matthew Bunsen, writing in his great book, The Pope Encyclopedia, notes that, quote, The nobles of Rome were uncommonly quiet during his pontificate, a testament to his strength of personality, end quote. Paul was well known for his robust Christian charity, particularly leaving his quarters at night to visit the imprisoned, to encourage them, provide them some hope, and pray for their release. None of Paul I's own writings exist today, at least not on the internet, in English, but we know that his legacy is in the foundations he laid in terms of how the church would be governed far into the future. Here's Matthew Bunsen again, noting that, quote, Paul proved a competent administrator, installing the first elements of the papal government that would endure over the states of the church for centuries, end quote. Paul died on June 28, 767, near the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome, where he had gone apparently to spend the summer months. He was buried there initially, but was later moved to St. Peter's Basilica. He is venerated as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, and his feast day is June 28, the day of his death. History has long forgotten the story of Paul's path to sainthood after his death, but we can't help but notice that he did at least get a one-up on his brother in the official sanctity department. Stephen II doesn't have that ST before his name, but baby brother does, but oh well. We can certainly hope the two of them are enjoying eternity together. That's all the sainthood they'd care about now at any rate. Well, that's a wrap on this bio of the other St. Paul. Just a couple of things to note here before we close things out. If you love the Popecast, would you consider joining us on Patreon as a supporter to get early access to new episodes and making sure we can continue to churn out new content each week? You can check out the various tiers at patreon.com slash thepopecast. We'd really love your support. Tiers start at a buck or two per episode, but... If you spring, for example, for the Benedict the Ninth tier, we'll prank call your enemies, pretending to be the Pope. Just saying. So once more, check it out at patreon.com slash thepopecast. If you haven't already, please also drop us a rating and review over at iTunes and make sure more folks like yourselves can find and listen to the show. And then as soon as you're finished listening here, hit that share button on your podcast or Spotify app and text this episode to a friend you think might like it too. Thank you, as always, to our listeners, new and old, especially those who have found us lately on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Be sure to catch us there in between new episodes at The Popecast for lots of other great stuff. As we head out today, let us ask for the prayers of Pope St. Paul I, that we might handle division with grace and courage, and that we might not lose hope when all seems lost. Until next time. <laughs>